Welcome to another inspirational message from Dave Coop, Senior Pastor of Coastal Church in Vancouver, Canada. So today we're going to continue on Sermon on the Mount, and uh, again, if you're visiting here, a huge welcome to you. More and more people are watching it also on the on the web, so if you happen to be watching this on the web, a warm welcome to you. We're glad that you're tuning in and watching it there. Oftentimes we have people that have been here in our church and then they go to another part of the world and uh, until they find another church, even after that, they tune in and watch there. So welcome if you happen to be listening at the website. Today is dealing with wealth and worries. Last week in the beginning of chapter 6, we spoke about when you give, when you pray, and when you fast. All three of these, the Lord said, we do in secret. Not that others don't see us or it's a fact that we're not doing it to have the attention of people. We're doing this for the Lord. What you do in secret, when you give, when you pray and fast, your consecrated life to the Lord has a dramatic effect on the next part of this chapter. Because from here we're going to go into the way we handle wealth and the way we handle the worries of life. The way you handle worry, the way you handle wealth, is very much related to what you're doing in secret, in your prayer closet, in your giving. How you do that will affect the wealth you have and the worries of life. So, questions arise as we go through the rest of this chapter, and we're going to go through those questions today. The first question is, where is your treasure? If you're taking notes, filling in the blanks, the word you want to put in there is treasure. Matthew 6, 19 to 21, it says, don't store up treasures here on earth, where they can be eaten by moths and get rusty, and where thieves break in and steal. In the day when Jesus spoke this, people accumulated wealth primarily through a couple things. One was fabric. They... Uh, That was a way to keep wealth. They had especially purple linens and different cloths. That was a a symbol and a status of wealth. He was saying, hey, moths can come along and your fabric's gone just like that. Or they accumulated metals, rust. So he's saying that can go very quickly or a thief can come and break it. But I'm going to tell you about a place you can put your treasure that will be there for all eternity. He says here, store your treasures in heaven. Where? They'll never become moth-eaten or rusty and where they'll be safe from thieves. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart and thoughts will also be. Have you heard that saying before? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Oftentimes people quote this. They don't even know where it's from. They don't know Jesus said it. They don't know it's Sermon on the Mount. But they'll often quote this, that where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. If I could take your bank statement today, if I could go through and just see where you spent your money in the last, let's say, 30, 60 days, that would be a very clear indication of where your heart is. Matter of fact, it's a good exercise. If you want an assignment for this week, if you're looking for some homework, here's some homework. Go and take your bank account and go to your statement. Just say, okay, where is my money going? Because that is, according to our Lord, the Sermon on the Mount, that's where your heart is. When I was dating my wife and, uh, man, you know, it was... It was expensive. <laughs> My engagement rings are expensive. And if you would have gone through it, you would have said, man, his heart is really, really there. It still is. But fortunately, uh, over the period of time, things have balanced out a little bit. <laughs> but there was a season where it was like every, I was saving up for a trip to Seer, saving up to buy a ring, saving up for this. It was like, whew, I got to win her heart. Hopefully God has her heart. Hopefully our treasure represents that we have a heart after God. It's a big shift when one day we wake up and we realize it's not about money. 
Money doesn't satisfy. It's a big shift when no longer are the treasures of things of this world number one in our life, and we make Jesus number one in our life, and we say, what I have, I'm going to direct to God. Again, please understand that our Lord is not against you having things. He's not against you having treasures. He's not against you having money. He, he, this is not about poverty. There's two ditches. You can get into a poverty ditch, and you can get into a prosperity ditch. But in the middle of the road, there's something called stewardship, where we steward what we have for God. Every gift we have is from Him. We live in a pretty good country. Amen? Wouldn't you agree with that? We live, I mean, you look around. We live in one of the most amazing cities, one of the most amazing countries, and we have far more than most of the rest of the world. And the Lord's saying, you need to direct your treasure towards my kingdom. Last week, when we talked about the Lord's Prayer, we learned to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's not my kingdom, my company, my home, my, 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 my. It's thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So the treasures that we have are to be directed to him. A number of years ago, be around 2001, 2002, we had a family that came every Sunday to church, and they'd always sit over here on this corner, and he was a well-known actor. And I talked to him a number of times after the services and in different times about the impact that Christ had on his life. There was a time that he, he served money, went totally after money. But he got introduced to Jesus, and there was an amazing change took place. And no longer was he looking for a treasure here on earth. He was looking for a treasure in heaven. And last time I chatted with him, we were meeting over at the Terrison building when we were in renovations here. He said, man, you know, since I made Jesus Lord of my life, I don't have near the parts I used to have, but I'll never give it up for the treasure that I found in Christ. His name's Stephen Baldwin. Here's a little story by video for you that'll bring you up to date on, on his life and how he made Jesus number one in his life. I'd say what was missing was the satisfaction. My life before Christ was uh, focused on making money. My life before Christ was uh, a totally day in and day out uh, existence that was uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, uh, uh, an existence of self-absorbance. Um, and, you know, just doing what you normally do when you're trying to maintain a career in the movie business. Loving Jesus is what's most important to me. And I, I know that sounds hokey, but it's the truth. My life is God's life in me for him to do with what he wants. My wife and I were living in Tucson, Arizona about 16 years ago almost, and through the family we hired this cleaning woman. She's working with us for about two weeks, and. My wife kind of notices her singing that she does every day in her work. Eventually, after a few more days of this, went to Augusta and said, you know, I noticed your singing and um, I was just curious, you know, why is every song about Jesus? Uh, perhaps there's another tune in your repertoire, so to speak. Um, and Augusta had a very interesting reaction uh, to the question. She literally burst out laughing in my wife's face. I just had to do that, sir. And Augusta said, you know, again, um, understand that the reason that I'm laughing is uh, you think the only reason that I'm here is to clean your house. 
Uh, so my wife, she says, honey, um, I, I'd like to share with you something that Augusta just told me. And I said, what's that, dear? And she said, uh, well, she just explained to me that the real reason she's here is because in the future, you and I are going to become born-again Christians, and at some point after that, we're going to have our own ministry. And I said... At that point in my career, I was making more money than I could ever wildly imagine. And just to, to hear uh, that idea vocalized at that point in time was utterly ridiculous. Uh, but um, that's the beginning of the journey for me. When I got to a place of willingness to just simply say to myself, Okay, I'm willing to believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And I'm now going to ask God to show me what that means. And I'm going to read the Bible and apply it to my life to the best of my ability to have that understanding. That's when uh, this whole experience became very, very real for me. I'm Stephen Baldwin. I am second. Well, if he's second, who's number one? Jesus is number one. And uh, that's the choice that we have to make in our lives. Who's going to be number one? We're going to get into a point in just a little bit about who owns you. But here he's making it very clear that I came to a decision in my life that it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the treasure. It was about storing up treasure in heaven and making him number one in my life. A question that has to be asked when you go through this Sermon on the Mount is, do I own my possessions or do they own me? And you think about that question for just a moment do you own possessions or do they own you? It's pretty quick to say, no, no, I don't. They don't, uh, they don't own me. I was challenged once on that. I was, at the time, dating Cheryl. I was living in Alberta. She's living in Regina. And we were building a big machine shed for our neighbors on the farm there. And uh, during the lunch hours, I'd quickly eat my lunch, and I would go shine my car. I was going to go seeing her at the weekend, so I'd shine my car up. Coffee break, I'd go and I'd sit down on the ground and I would shine my mags, make sure there was no spotted dust on them. Everything was just polished as polished could be. And the farmer came over and he said to me, Dave, um, you worship your car. You're down on your knees worshiping your car every break. I go, no, I don't. I don't worship my car. I go to church. He goes, no, no, you, you worship your car. I see that. I go, no, I don't. And he, and he just left. And I was thinking, man, you know, I spend more time polishing my car than I do reading the Bible. I spend more time polishing my car than I would do. Uh, and all of a sudden I realized, well, maybe I do. Maybe I am putting way too much emphasis on this. And later on, Cheryl and I would get married. And then we were working, as you know, in the oil industry. And God, for a season, asked us to go back to Bible school. And uh, we needed more funds to go to school. And so we were praying, God, please... Send in the finances, we need to go to school. And it was like no, no money was coming. We were trying everything to raise extra money, working extra hard, and we still were short. And I had this nagging thought that wouldn't leave me, sell the car. Sell the 68 Firebird, let it go. But I said, God, that's a non-negotiable. That's not even on the table. The car is out of the question. We can, anything, anything else can go, but not the car. And uh, guess what? God wouldn't let me off the hook. He said, where's your treasure? And uh, so I said, okay, God, I'll, I'll let it go. 
And so we sold it. And after that, the money came in and things began to flow. But he wanted me to get rid of it, let it go. He said, the time's right. You can have another one, but right now, let it go. Where's your treasure? And so sold it. Next question comes out of this sermon we need to ask ourselves is, why do I have what I have? If you have a house with extra rooms in it that nobody's in, why do you have that? If you have a car that the back seat never gets used, why do you have a back seat that never gets used? Why do you have a van with empty seats? Could somebody come to you with you on, to church on Sunday? Could you be giving somebody else a ride? Or if you, everything we have, we really have to ask this question, why do I have that? Why do I have the clothes I have? Why do I have the jewelry I have? Why do I have the house that I live? Why do I have the summer home that I have? Why do I have the boat that I have? Why do I have everything we have? We need to stop and ask ourselves the question, why do I have what I have? You might say, well, that question makes me very uncomfortable. I'm not sure I like that question. Well, the fact of the matter is, one day you will be asked that question. One day I will be asked that question. We'll stand before the Lord. He'll ask us, what did, I, what did you do with what I gave you? Remember the parable of the talents? Some had ten, some had five, some had one. The master went away and came back, and he asked him, what did you do with what I gave you? One day Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, the question comes up, what did you do with what I gave you? Canadians, fellow Canadians, and visitors to our country, we have a lot. And God's going to ask us, what did you do with what I gave you? Was it about you, about your kingdom and your treasure, or was it directed toward my kingdom for something eternal? Did you store up treasure in heaven with it, or was it about you and what you consumed for your life, for your gratification? Those are the questions that Jesus is asking here in the Sermon on the Mount. The second question that comes out of this is, how do you view things? He starts off, of course, by saying where your treasure is, there your we have to review point number one, obviously. <laughs> point number one is, where is your treasure? End of the verse says, wherever your treasure is, there your heart is. All right. It's okay for group participation. If you're new or visiting, sometimes we have group participation. It's all right. So, again, wherever your heart is, there your treasure is. Much better. All right. So we got number one. Some of you are thinking, man, I'm not going to do that no matter how many times. Yes, I'm not saying that. <laughs> It's all right. Wherever your heart is, there your treasure is. So that's what he starts off with. Then he goes into talking about the eye. He says, is your eye evil or is your eye good? Because if your eye is good, your body will be good. If it's evil, you'll have darkness. Then he goes on in verse 24 says that you can't serve two masters. You can't serve money and you can't serve God at the same time. So in between that thought of where your treasures, your heart is, and you can't serve two masters, he talks about your eye being evil or good. Why does he sandwich that in between there? Did he just change thoughts in between, or is this a continuous flow of thoughts? It's a continual flow of thought. So let's go. It's there in your notes. Matthew 6, 22, 23. How do you view things? Your eye is a lamp for your body. A pure eye, or King James says a single eye, Let's sunshine into your soul, but an evil eye shuts out the light and plunges you into darkness. If the light you think you have is really darkness, how deep is that, that darkness will be? What is the evil eye? In Matthew 20, we have another reference to the evil eye. In Matthew 20, you have the story about the landlord who went and hired some laborers for his field. He goes to town early in the morning, and he sees some people at work. He says, hey, you guys want a job? They go, yeah, we want a job. He's okay, I'll pay you a day's wage. Great. They jump on the pickup truck. He takes them to the field. They go to work. About 9 or 10 o'clock, he goes back into town. He sees some more people. 
hey, you guys back there, you want work? He goes, yeah, yeah. They said, we'll have work. Great. Jump in. Takes them to the field. They're working. Noon, he goes back. Hey, you guys over there. Yeah, you guys. Do you, <laughs> do you want some work? They go, yeah, we'll have some work. Jump in the truck. So they go to the field. Then later on in the afternoon, he says, hey, you guys over there, you want some work? Yeah? Okay. Jump on in. I got work for you. So they go to the field. And he gives them this day's work. At the end of the day, he goes to pay them. He starts off with those, these guys here start at the end of the day. They start at 5 o'clock. They work till 6. Say, I I got your days, I got your wage for you. And you know, they're expecting a couple hours worth of Salary, he gives them the full day's wage. You know, these guys are like, Woo, yeah, bonus. I like this guy a lot. They're, they just skip on out of there. They're really happy. Then the people that start at three, they get a full day's wage. Still a pretty good deal. Noon, full day's wage. By the time they got to the people that started early in the morning, they're thinking they're going to get paid a lot because after all, they work through the sun, they work through the heat. Those guys got a full day's wage. They started at five, so surely this guy's going to give me a lot more because I worked all day. By the end of the day, he gives them the same wage. They're ticked off. They're mad. This is not fair. And he says to them, you have an evil eye. You have an evil eye because you can't see my generosity. Grace is not fair. We always sympathize for the people who started early in the morning. We can feel for them because often that's the way we feel, like life isn't fair. Look what I did. I need my, my kingdom, my wage, my rights. And there's this, there's this feeling of entitlement. That's the evil eye. Grace, evil eyes, I want my fair share. And he said, if we have that eye, if we don't have an eye of grace focused on him, it will bring darkness into our whole body. I put a quote here from John Piper in your notes. He helps unpack this. He says, make sure that you see heavenly treasure as infinitely more precious than earthly material treasure. When your eye sees things this way, you are full of light. And if you don't see things this way, even the light you think you see, the glitz and flash and skin and muscle of this world, is all darkness. You are sleepwalking through life. You are serving money as a slave without even knowing it because it has lulled you to sleep. Far better is it to be swayed by the truth, the infinite value of God. A pure eye, a good eye, is single-minded, focused on God and his kingdom. The evil eye is double vision, focused on treasure, focused on God. You have to be single-minded. That's why he goes on in the third point here, who or what owns you. Number one is where is your treasure? Number two is how do you view things? Where's your focus? And then number three, who or what owns you? Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Who owns you? Who's your master? For you will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. Then he says, you cannot. And if you like circle the word cannot, you cannot serve both God and money. Now, it doesn't say you shouldn't serve both God and money. It doesn't, because that would be a priority choice. It doesn't say you must not, but it says you cannot. In other words, it is impossible. You can't serve God and serve money. You have to serve one or the other. You can only have one master. God's biggest competition is money. Jesus had a lot to say about money, more than heaven, more than hell, more than other subjects. He talked about money because it's the biggest thing to come along and cause us to worry, cause us to choke the life out of us. 
He knows what we deal with. He understands us. He knows we struggle with it. He said, so please be careful that you serve me and don't serve money. Bob Dylan, the great theologian, once wrote this. No, he's not a theologian. That's just a bad joke. <laughs> but he had a good song. He wrote this. You got to serve somebody. He says, you might be an ambassador to England or France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. You might be a construction worker working at a home. You might be living in a mansion. Or you might live in a dome. You might own guns. You might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. Somebody owns you. Something owns you. We serve something. What Stephen Baldwin was saying there, he says, It may sound hokey, but I've decided to serve Jesus. Freedom comes when we decide to serve. He is If you want a Lord, he is the Lord of Lords. Nothing compares to the sweetness of surrendering your life and saying, Lord, I've decided to serve you. Serving money is a trap. It's a lousy way to live. People that have have this appetite for money, if you read carefully and follow along, you never get enough. You can never get enough money. You get so much, oh, I want some more. You get so much, I want some more. You never are satisfied. Paul said, I've learned to be content. I've had plenty, I've had little. But there's this contentment in following Jesus. Again, God's got no problem with you having things, as long as the things don't have you. It's the direction. What are you doing with them? How are you, what are you doing with it? How are you directing it? That's the key. So what or who owns you? That's important. I was one time driving when I worked in the oil industry, and uh, as I was driving along, the Lord arrested me. And he really put on my heart an impression to go back and visit this fellow who operated his company in a little town in Saskatchewan. And I drove back to see him. He's a busy guy. Always had people coming and going out of his office. His office was nothing more than a converted Quonset, a machine shed. And that's where he had his oil company. And uh, normally, the secretary was there, and there'd be all kinds of traffic in and out. And I, I drove up that day, and nobody was around. And I walked in, and and he said, Dave, what are you doing here? I said, I just popped by to say hi. And he said, well, come on in. And I sat down across the desk from him. And uh, he said, Dave, thanks for inviting me to those meetings. I never have time to go, but what are they about anyhow? I had been inviting him to full gospel businessman fellowship meetings. And he, he never had the time to come, but he'd always say, hey, here's, here's some money for a couple tickets. And he was always very supportive. He says, well, tell me what goes on at the meetings. So I said, well, we talk about, we'll have a businessman share his story or businesswoman about how Christ impacted their life. He says, well, tell me more about it. So I began to tell him about the love of Christ and what it means to have him as Lord in your life. And he looked at me, and again, it was such a setup because nobody was coming or going. We had this little cocoon of time where we were just, God kept that moment for us. And he was, he, he was a poor farmer had a quarter section of land, 160 acres. Sounds like a lot in B.C., but if you're in Saskatchewan, you can barely turn your cultivator around in 160 acres. It's not a lot. And, uh, but he, he had sold that. He bought his first oil well, and he said, David never made less than $20,000 a month for me since, so he did pretty good on that one. 
when I visited him, he had maybe 150 wells or so, so he was doing okay. Most people who had that kind of company, they would have had three or four stories in a building in Calgary. He just operated out of his little Quonset there, that little town. And uh, so we began to talk, and he said, Dave, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that Jesus paid the price for all the wrong I've done in my life, that he paid that bill, and if I accept that, that bill's clean, I have eternal life. He, he just repeated it back to me what we were talking about. I said, that's right. He said, well, I'm a businessman. This is an amazing deal. Um, I don't need to go to church or anything for it. Can I, can I do this now? I said, absolutely. He says, well, then what do we do? I said, well, we need to pray. And so he cried, I cried, and God showed up in that office that day. Well, I met him a couple months later, and he, I asked him how it was going. He said, oh, great. He said, what a change in my life. He said, I've never had so much fun doing business in my life before. God loves the marketplace. A lot of us are called to the marketplace, called to business, called to work with treasure, work with finances. He said, I was drilling wells in Tabor, Alberta. He said, I met this guy from Texas. These guys from Texas love their Bibles. He said, this guy was from Texas, and we, had, we just sit in the truck, and we watch the drilling week work, and then we read the Bible. He says, I am so excited to direct what I have towards God's kingdom. And he loved what he was doing. He's a wealthy businessman. You can be a wealthy businessman, a wealthy businesswoman, and you can absolutely enjoy it, be right smack in the middle of God because it doesn't have you. God has your life, and you're thrilled to serve him with what he's entitled to you. It's a high life. It's a great life to live. The question is, how do you view it? Where's your heart? Where's your treasure? Now, one thing money can do for us is it can lead us to worry if we don't have our sights on heaven. So the next thing we go into is why do you worry? Where's your treasure? How do you view things? Who or what owns you? And then lastly, why do you worry? Somebody made this statement once, Lord, I trust you so much. I'm going to enjoy my life. Can we say that? God, I trust you so much. I'm going to enjoy my life. One of the greatest compliments to God is you enjoy your life. One of the greatest things kids can do for their parents is I like my life. I like my home. I like what you've provided for me. I'm enjoying my life. What's hard is when the children don't enjoy it, and they complain about this or that, and it's never good enough, never enough. That gets tired after a while. But with our attitude with God is, God, I love you so much, I'm going to enjoy what you've given to me. Like Paul said, whether I've little, whether I've lot, I've learned to be content. I've learned to enjoy it. That's good living. I enjoy my life, what you've given to me. So why do we worry? Worry actually comes from an old English word meaning to strangle. In Matthew chapter, I mean Mark 4, where it talks about the parable of sowing the word, it says the seed cast in the weeds represents the ones who hear the kingdom news, but who are overwhelmed with worries about all the things they have to do and the things they want to get. The stress strangles what they heard and nothing comes of it. It is possible to sit in church, hear God's word, go to life group, go to regeneration, read your Bible, and we have the worries of life about things we have to do, things we want to get, and it strangles the very life that God wants to bring into us. So God addresses worry in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 25 to 34, here's a few thoughts. Jesus said, so I tell you, don't worry. Not a suggestion, really it's a command. Don't worry about everyday life. 
whether you have enough food, drink, and clothes. Doesn't life consist of more than food and clothing? Look at the birds. They don't need to plant or harvest or put food in barns because your heavenly Father feeds them. And you are more valuable to him than they are. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And he gives you the answer. Of course not. Worrying is like sitting on a rocking chair. Lots of motion, but no progress. Worry will do that to you. Canadians. Hello, fellow Canadians. Do you know what the number one diagnosed condition at the doctor's office is? Depression. It doubled in the last 10 years, according to Stats Canada, depression in our country. What causes depression? Let's, let's back it up. Depression comes from anxiety, and anxiety comes from worry. Proverbs tells us in 1224 that, that your anxiety leads to depression. Nothing new there. Our, our country is overridden with anxiety and depression. And depression wrecks your immune system. And it's not, medical studies say it's not how bad you're depressed that lowers your immune system. It's how long you're depressed or anxious. Why is Jesus saying don't be worried? Because he likes you. Because he loves you. He doesn't want you sick. He doesn't want you weighed down. He wants you to be free. He wants you, look at the birds. They're free. When we talk about traps this fall, we'll talk about birds. It says, my soul has escaped doesn't say like a gopher or like a rat or like a mouse. It says like a bird. Why? Because a bird represents, represents three dimensions of freedom. God wants you free. Worry absolutely weighs you down, and we don't live this abundant life he intended us to have. He knew it would steal your immune system. He knew that what you worry about only gets worse. He knows that it just zaps the life out of you. He knew what would be happening in Canada in the year 2010. Is this message applicable for today? You better believe it is. He says, don't worry. And then again, the next chapter, or next paragraph, why worry about your clothes? Then the next paragraph, so don't worry about having enough food or clothing. Why be like the pagans who are so deeply concerned about these things? Your Heavenly Father already knows all your needs. He'll give you all you need from day to day. If you live for Him, there's the key if you live for him where's your treasure what's number one are you second or where are the treasures what's first god's first okay great if you live for him and make the kingdom of god your primary concern so don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will bring its own worries today's trouble is enough for today there is a fellow by the name of thomas kepler biblical scholar and there is he was involved with the study this lady did on her life, and she kept track of all her worries, and they found that her study has been since replicated. This is what she found out. 40% of the things she worried about never happened. 30% of the things she worried about had already happened. 12% of the things she worried about were others' opinions and criticisms that usually came out of jealousy or insecurity. 10% of the things she worried about were needless health worries, which only made her health, health worse. But 8% of the things she worried about were actually real-life problems. And they found other studies to show the same thing. About 8% of the stuff that you worry about is actually stuff you should be focused on. That's the problems for today. Tomorrow, Jesus says, hey, there's enough problems tomorrow. Don't borrow tomorrow's problems and import them today. Just take care of today. Cast your cares upon the Lord. You know, there's a verse in Philippians. It says, be anxious for how much? Somebody know? 
for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, with prayer and thanksgiving, let God know your requests. Now listen carefully. It says, and the peace of God, which surpasses your understanding. You won't figure this thing out. It will pass your understanding. Will guard your heart and your mind in Christ. Then it says, finally, brethren, think of those things which are just, pure, true, true. You know what you're worried about? A lot of times it's not true. The enemy comes along. He plants his thought. He extrapolates it to some mirage, and you start thinking about it. It's not true. <gasps> what happens if this? And this happens, and that happens. They do this, they do that. And pretty soon this thing's blown way out of proportion, and you've got to say, mind, where are you? There's no truth in that. I'm not going to let my mind go there. Peace of God is what we need for the battles we have today. What are you fighting today? What's your battle? What, what is bigger than you are that you're facing? Gideon went into battle. He was way outnumbered. They had, he didn't have a chance of winning the fight. But God shows up, and he makes his odds even harder. And then God introduces his name, Jehovah Shalom. It's the first mention of his name, Jehovah Shalom, in the Bible. It's important to us. He's going into battle. God could have said, my name is God the Mighty, God the Provider, my banner over you is love. He could have said all those different names. But he says, no, my name is Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace. What do we need in the battles of life more than anything? We need the peace of God. No worries. Like the Australians say, no worries. No worries is not just a saying if we have our faith in him that the battle belongs to the Lord. Gideon won that battle because he had a peace. If you have peace when you move into battle, faith has a rest. Faith has a peace. I don't know how it's going to work, but it's, everything's going to be all right. What's the cure for worry? Let's close with this. Remember the father factor. Heavenly Father cares for you. He's a good daddy. Psalm 103, 14. He understands. He knows how weak we are. He knows we're only dust. He knows how fragile we are. Number two, remember the focus factor. When worried, you're out of focus. If you're worried, you've got to kind of focus back in. Dial in. To the Father, to Jesus, thy kingdom come. And then remember the future factor. Don't borrow tomorrow's troubles. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Close in prayer this morning. Worship team's coming up. And you could be here this morning and you said, you've talked a lot about treasures in heaven. And I'd like to be there. I'd like to know the Lord. I'd like to have him in my life. It is possible for you today to have an amazing encounter just like we heard from Stephen Baldwin in that video, there was a day when he realized that Jesus really is who he said he was. Like he said, I know it sounds hokey. And to the world it does. But when he knocks on your heart's door and reveals his love to you and said, if you'll let me be Lord of your life, I'll direct you, I'll guide you, and I'll show you the abundant life that I have promised. I invite you to pray with me here this morning and you've never invited him into your life or maybe you've wandered off it's time to come back and focus on the lord would you pray with me this morning let's pray together dear heavenly father this sunday morning i open up my heart and i receive your love i receive your forgiveness i receive your healing and jesus today i make you lord of my life I declare I am second. I accept you today. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to download free notes from this message or find out more information about Pastor Dave Coop, then we invite you to visit our website at www.coastalchurch.org.